0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue to walk through the book of Hebrews together today. We're not finishing our time in Hebrews, but we are finishing our time in the second chapter of Hebrews. If you've been with us, you know that the writer of Hebrews has been establishing for us the supremacy of Christ. That Christ is the final and full revelation of God to us that He is supreme over the angels, and and that we need to trust in Him. He has warned us against neglecting our salvation and neglecting to trust in Christ. And as we come to the passage today, we're again reminded of why it is we can trust in Him, that that He is very much our help and able to help us in our time of need and in suffering and in temptation. You may have already noticed in your outline there are a few more points than normal, uh, there's about ten this morning, but but really there's just one point. Uh, the point of the text today is that Jesus is able to help us. And we're going to look just practically at ten points related to that. So uh, it's kind of like taking a sip of water out of a fire hydrant. We're going to move pretty fast through this text uh, because I want us to, to bring our application in at the Lord's table together. And so just a word about that, especially if you're a visitor with us this morning. Uh, the Lord's table is for all professing followers of Jesus Christ. So if you have placed your trust and your hope and your faith in Jesus and made a profession of that faith, then we invite you to participate in the Lord's table with us. If you've yet to take that step, that commitment, then we would invite you to observe uh, as we gather around the table towards the end of our time. That, that will be our, our response to the Word today. We'll be coming to the table together. Well, let's begin by looking at the text. We're going to pick up now in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. We're at the point... Uh, where the writer's been helping us to understand how Christ indeed is our perfect elder brother. We have been brought in to the family of faith. God is our Father, Christ is our brother, and we are children of God. And then he will pick up on that in helping us to see that this supreme Christ is there to help us. And so we're going to look at verses 14-18 through and add a reverence for God's Word if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this passage for us this Lord's Day. Again, as a reminder, we stand at a reverence for the Word of God. This is God's Word to us, and this is what He says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted." If you would, pray with me. Father, I thank You for the encouragement of Your Word today, that that Christ indeed is able to help us. I thank You, Lord, that the Gospel does not teach us that You help those who help themselves. The Gospel teaches us that You help those who are helpless. You are the one who enables us to be born again. You are the one who does this work of salvation in our lives. And so, Lord, as we look to Your Word today, I pray that You would encourage us, especially for those of us who may be struggling with various temptations today, struggling with different trials, anxieties, worries, sufferings, Lord, that You would help us to see in a very real way from Your Word that Jesus is able to help us. So, Lord, I pray we would put our trust and our hope in Jesus today. And we ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you uh, listen to the podcast, The Briefing with Dr. Albert Moeller. And I-, I do. And this week, as I was listening to it, he mentioned an article that caught my attention. So I went back and read it. It appeared. On May 31st in the New York Times, the title of the article was this, Surviving the Death of My Son After the Death of My Faith. This author went on to describe how she had left the religion, the faith that she had grown up in, and how hard it was for her later then, after leaving her faith, to experience the loss of her four-month-old son. She wrote this, Several years after leaving my religion, I felt sure I had encouraged all the situations I might possibly need to get used to in my new life. What I had not prepared myself for was death. Grief without faith. Which is to say, death without hope. And she goes on to talk about in this article how a religion and faith can be a a comfort to people when they experience death. And yet for her, she found no comfort. She says... If belief were a choice, I might choose it. But it's not. I don't trade in certainty anymore. If there's something more, it's not something we know. If we can't even grasp how it is that we got here, how can we know with any certainty where, if anywhere, we go when we die? Now I read this to, to bring up the issue that we've been talking about as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews together. We've been looking at how the author of Hebrews, the writer here, has encouraged us to hold firmly to our faith and has warned us not to neglect this great salvation. And what we find in the words of this article and what we find so often in the world today is that when we neglect the faith, when we don't trust in God, when we're left to ourselves, well, these are the answers we find. We find there is no hope. We find that we can't reconcile why we're here or where we're going. Left to ourselves, there are no answers. But God has not left us to ourselves. He has given us His Word. And that's the foundation that the writer here has brought us to to help us to understand that we don't need to figure out life and death and eternity on our own. No, God has revealed it to us. He has spoken, and this is what He has said. Hebrews 1, verse 1, "...long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world." Here we have the answer to life's questions. Here we have the answer to where we came from. And here we have the answer that points us towards where we are going if we are found to be in Christ. If we do not neglect this great salvation. If we hold firm until the end. So the writer here is helping us to see, friends, we're not on our own. We're not out there trying to figure this out by ourselves. He's given us His Word. And in it we find so much truth And we find such a foundation that we can then stand firmly on. And so the foundation I want to look to today again is that central point of this passage that Jesus is able to help us. The question is, why is it that Jesus is uniquely able to help us? And that's what we're going to look at rather swiftly as we walk through these ten points. Beginning with the first one there in your outline, Jesus is able to help because He took on flesh. He took on flesh. The writer says in verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He likewise partook of the same things. This is something that helps us to remember the incarnation, that Jesus took on flesh, that Jesus became a man. This is what John writes about in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then later in verse 14 he tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the truth of the scripture is is that Jesus is able to help us because Jesus became one of us. He came into our humanity. Now He didn't become a sinner like us. The scripture is clear that He was without sin, but the scripture is also clear that He is truly God and truly man. And the great promise of that is what we find in Matthew chapter one and in Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew's Gospels, there's this, this book in that reminds us of the beauty of the incarnation. It begins there in Matthew chapter 1, where we're reminded of the prophet's words concerning Emmanuel, this name that we be given, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus comes in flesh. He is now with us. And then the words of Christ Himself at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Christian, do you hear that? Do you understand what that means? That if you're indeed a follower of Jesus Christ today, what that means is that Jesus is always with you. Always. And because He's always with us, then He is always able to help us. See, somebody can't help us if they're not with us. Maybe you've had the experience like I have of of moving before. We've moved just a few times in our life, and I can remember, well, it was a while back, and I pray I don't do it in the future. I remember that last time we were moving, we had so much stuff, and there were a lot of people who knew we were moving, and so we'd have all kinds of people say to us, well, hey, when it comes time to move, just let us know how we can help. We'd be glad to help you when you move. And there were those who really showed up and they did help, but everybody who says they're going to help doesn't always show up. Well, let me ask you, how helpful is it for a person to tell you they'll help you move if they don't actually show up when you move? <laughs> That's not very helpful, is it? But what we see here in the Scripture is that Jesus is radically different than any relationship on this earth we might experience. Jesus is always with us. Jesus doesn't give us a promise that He'll help us if we need Him. He says He is always with us. He will never leave or forsake us. And because of that, we can know that He is able to help us. Friends, it doesn't matter what you have done this morning. It doesn't matter what dark hole you have crawled into in your sin. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you can hold to the promise He is always with you. And as a result of that, we know He can always help us. Point two, Jesus is able to help because He died for us. Verse 14, the writer here reminds us that this was accomplished through death. This calls us back to the the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus was born in order to die. That This takes us to those great gospel truths that we hear so often that that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. That that we each deserve death for our sin. But what did Jesus do? God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christian, do you see that great truth that's there? That great exchange that's there? You and I, because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve death. Christ was without sin. Christ did not deserve death. Christ went to the cross. He who knew no sin, He became sin. He took on my penalty and yours on the cross. He died in our place, but it doesn't end there. Then in exchange for trusting in Him and that debt that He paid, in exchange for placing our faith, our hope, our trust in Him, then we receive the righteousness of God. We deserve death. He was righteous. He takes on our death and we receive His righteousness. He's able to help us because He He died for us. We can trust Him. Just as we saw last Lord's Day how... God uses suffering in the life of Jesus. He uses suffering in the life of his people. He is bringing us to glory through suffering. And as he used that suffering in Christ's life, he uses it in ours as well. We can trust him to do what he said he will do because Jesus died for us. Number three, Jesus is able to help because he defeated the devil. Verse 14 says that, that through this death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now it seems like in the church today, we either speak very little of the devil and angels, or we speak almost too much about the devil and angels. We, we almost place too much power, attribute too much power towards them. And notice the, the balance here in the book of Hebrews the writer here makes it very clear that yes, certainly there are angels. They are agents of God for a purpose, but Jesus is greater than the angels. He also makes it clear that there isn't a many. There is the devil. He does have some power. It's a limited power under the sovereign control of God, but we need to be careful we don't attribute too much to him. We tend in the Christian life again to either just ignore the devil or we attribute too much to him. And we find there's balance in the Scripture. And in that balance, we see that he certainly has power related to death. This is how Jesus refers to him in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And we see in creation, in the fall, that that the devil hates those who are created in the image of God. He wants to destroy them. We see so much wickedness and so much sin in our world today and how that sin leads to death. And we can see the influence, the power of the devil here. But again, we need to be careful that we don't attribute too much power to him because as the writer points out here, Christ has defeated the devil. He is still at work, but he is a defeated enemy. And we need to keep that perspective in mind. Because if not, in our zeal at times, we tend to see ourselves as if we're just going out there and we're just doing battle against the devil. (laughs) And Jesus has already done that. You might think of it this way. I heard a preacher tell a story once about a young man who was so proud of this pocket knife he'd gotten. And he goes out one day and he comes back to town. He's got that pocket knife in one hand and he's got the tail of a lion in his other hand. And he's just walking all around town telling people how, how tough he is and how strong his trusty knife is and how he came upon that line and he, he cut his tail right off. Somebody said, well, if you're so tough, why didn't you cut off its head? He said, well, I would have if somebody hadn't already done it for me. <laughs> See, that's how it is, though, with us and the enemy. He's a defeated enemy. Christ has crushed the head of the serpent. His power, whatever it may be, is very limited. And what we see here is this biblical truth is that what we can trust in Jesus, Jesus is able to help us because Jesus has destroyed the work of the devil. He has conquered sin and death. Therefore, He is able uniquely to help us. Continues there with point four, Jesus is able to help because He alone has freed us from the slavery to fear. The slavery to fear. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus not only defeated the devil through his death, but that he also has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Most of us are born with a fear of death. Now, there is, I believe, a healthy fear of death. It is a good thing to realize your own mortality... That, that fear of death is self-preservation. It, it keeps us alive. It keeps us from doing some things that might lead to our premature death. And so it's a, it's a healthy thing to realize our limitations. But I don't think that's what's being talked about here. This more is a, is a fear, almost a terror of dealing with the reality that we're going to die. That we live in a, in a culture that is obsessed with trying to figure out how to live longer. A culture that's obsessed with trying to figure out how can we numb every inch of pain in our lives so we are not reminded of our mortality. A culture that will do whatever it can and people will spend whatever they have in order to push back death sometimes even just a few days. And the question is, why? And the answer from the Scripture is because we fear it. Because like the writer of that article I read, we in our culture have such a lack of certainty, a lack of understanding about what is to come. Or for those who in their sin start to get a glimpse of the reality of judgment and God's wrath, there is reason to fear. But for those in Christ, we need not fear because Christ has conquered sin and death. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 quoting from Isaiah and from Hosea. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, Christ went to the cross and and He defeated sin and death. So, brother, sister, we we don't have anything to fear in it. Now, we have every reason to, to want to hold on to things in this world and relationships and life and live life to its fullest, live life for the glory of God. But but we need to look to death not as something we should run from or fear, but that which alone will bring us into the presence of Christ our King. He is able to help us because He has freed us from this slavery to fear. Point five, Jesus is able to help us because He is our perfect elder brother. And we talked about this last Lord's Day, again, just as a a review. We see that Jesus is the one in Scripture who is our perfect elder brother. The Scripture here tells us, the writer reminds us in verse 16, it's not the angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. We've been brought into the family of God. And now we're in this unique relationship with Christ as our brother. It's not the angels that He's doing all these things for. It's us. Why? Because He is our elder brother and He's the perfect elder brother. Verse 17, Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. And so we see that this picture in the Scripture so often, as we talked about last week, of dysfunctional families, dysfunctional older brothers, that those who kill their brother, those who don't watch out for their brother. And then in contrast to that, we see this perfect picture of righteousness in Jesus. And so as I mentioned last Thursday, some of you, when you think about your older siblings, some of you who are older siblings, that there might be all kinds of devastation of sin in your life and your relationships. It may be that you never wanted to be like your older brother. But for others of you, there might have been a healthy relationship there. You wanted to be like them. You wanted to follow in their footsteps. And the Scripture says here is that Jesus is the perfect elder brother. We should want to be like Him. He will never let us down. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He's able to help us. Point six, Jesus is also able to help because He is our High Priest. Verse 17 says these things have happened so that He might become a merciful and a faithful High Priest in the service of God. Now again, there is great depth to this picture in the Scripture. We're going to talk about this much more in detail as we get into the end of Hebrews 4, beginning of Hebrews 5, where the writer here unlocks for us just a treasure of what it means that Jesus is our great high priest. But for now, we're reminded of what the writer told us at the very beginning of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, He is the radiance, Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power, and after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We talked about that that picture you have of the Levitical priests in the tabernacle and how as you study the tabernacle in the Scripture, that there's no seat there for them to sit down on and rest on because there is always work to be done. That they are annually offering up on behalf of the people that that sacrifice, that purification for sins. And yet here it's clear in the very beginning of Hebrews that, that Jesus made The sacrifice for the purification of sins. And then He sat down. Why? Because the work is finished. And what that means in a very real way in your life and in my life is this. We do not earn merit before God through our commitments, our actions, our vows, or our sacrifices. Jesus paid it all and he sat down. And why can he uniquely do that? Because he is the perfect high priest. So then he's the one who can help us. He is the one who does help us because he's our high priest. Number seven, Jesus is able to help because he is merciful and he is faithful. I hear the writer in telling us about him being the perfect high priest, he says that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God. As we consider that word merciful, it means to show compassion. And this is what we see consistently through the Gospels when we study the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. When you think about when Jesus feeds the 4,000 in the picture that, that we see in Matthew chapter 15, Matthew tells us that He looked to the crowd and He had compassion on them. He felt merciful toward them. They had been with Him for days and they were hungry. And so what does Jesus do that He is uniquely positioned to do that no one else there can do? He feeds thousands of them. We see this mercy continue. Luke chapter 7, when He brings the widow's son to life, as He is presented with His lifeless child, the Scripture said that He looks to the mother and He felt compassion on her. And that compassion moved Him to action. And you may recall Luke chapter 10, when Jesus talks about the story of the Good Samaritan, He talks about the motivation there is compassion. It's feeling mercy. So how does that relate to us? Well, it relates this way. In the Scripture, we always see that the compassion of Christ, Him being merciful, is always followed by a tangible action. He is merciful, so He acts. So we can trust that Jesus helps us. Why? Because He is merciful and in His compassion, He always acts. He doesn't just stand at a distance. He doesn't just sit back and watch the chaos of chaos of our lives. The scripture tells us that he enters in, he is compassionate, he is merciful, he is indeed faithful. That means He always does what He says He will do. So we can hold firmly to passages like Matthew 28 where Jesus says to us, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And we can look around and say, well, the age hasn't ended yet. Therefore, who is with us? Jesus is. Why? Because He always does what He says He will do. He is merciful and He is faithful. Point eight. Jesus is able to help because... He is the propitiation for our sins. Verse 17, it says He did this to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I realize that that's a big word, but that big word it has a big meaning, but we need to be careful we don't just kind of skip over these terms in the Scripture. Propitiation means that Jesus bore God's wrath and the curse that rested on the people that rested on us. Jesus didn't just die on the cross in some general way. He died on the cross very specifically in your place and in mine because we deserved it for our sin. Very specifically for the sins in our life, for our sinful heart, for our rebellion. And Jesus is the propitiation. That means He is the one who was the substitute. He was the one who atoned for every single one of those sins in my life and in yours. This is why John says in 1 John 2, two, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, 10, he says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see the order there? It's not that we were crying out to God and then He responded. It's not that we loved Him so He loved us back. As Romans says, it's not, I mean, as Paul says in Romans, it's not that, that he demonstrated love towards us while we were seeking him. No, while we were sinners, lost in our sin, he acted. He realized, he pointed to us in our helplessness before we even recognize our own helplessness, and he sent us help before we realized we needed it. And because of that, we can trust in him. Jesus is able to help us. Number nine. Jesus is able to help because he suffered. Verse 18 tells us because he himself has suffered. Again, the emphasis here in this section of Hebrews, I believe, is on the humanity of Jesus. And so this is very specifically talking about Jesus' sufferings. He suffered on his way to the cross. He suffered on the cross. In his humanity, Jesus suffered. But the picture we see in the Scripture is there's a connection we find at times between the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings we go through. Especially as Peter points out in 1 Peter 4, when we suffer for doing things that are God's will. When we suffer in our pursuit of righteousness. And he says in those times, we should be glad... We should be hopeful. Why? He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. We can trust God who was able to deliver His Son that He indeed is the one who can help us. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. Whatever you are going through, have gone through, will go through, Jesus is uniquely equipped to perfectly understand, and to perfectly help you and I out. Now that's not the case with us with each other. I haven't gone through everything you're going through. You you haven't gone through everything I'm going through. You you can offer your prayers and your words of encouragement, but, but you can't empathize as one who's walked the same road unless you've walked the road. And Jesus has walked the road. Jesus knows our suffering. Well, we can barely comprehend His. And so in this, we see that that He uniquely can help us. And number 10, Jesus is able to help because He was tempted. Verse 18, the writer says here, He Himself has suffered when tempted. And because of that, He is able to help those who are being tempted. That The Scripture says to us that, that Jesus was tempted, therefore He can understand. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And this is the comfort that I believe the writer is seeking to bring to the Hebrews specifically. This is why he says, When tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. We might ask the question, well, what was it the Hebrews were being tempted with? And I think very clearly the temptation here is the one that's been addressed. That the temptation is to neglect such a great salvation. That the temptation is not to trust in Jesus. The temptation is not to trust in the will of God. The temptation is to try to bypass our our pain and our suffering and our persecution in order to find some quicker avenue to comfort. And this is a temptation that Jesus knew. When we consider Jesus' time in the wilderness, what is the temptation that we see Jesus facing there? It's to receive the crown without the cross. It's to receive the glory without the suffering. And friends, this is the way we are tempted so often too. We want a shortcut out of our pain. We want to go to sleep and we want the suffering, the trials, the persecutions, the devastations that we've experienced, we want it all to be a bad dream. And we come to the Scripture and we find that while we can't perfectly reconcile how all this fits together, we can understand that God is sovereign over it and He has a plan for it and He has not left us and He has not forsaken us. And in the midst of it, that Jesus is able to help us in a way that no person and no pill and no anything else can. And we can trust in Him for these reasons. We can look to Him. He is able to help us. So how do we apply this text? Some of you in this room are struggling in your marriages. And the application for you today is to turn to Jesus and understand Jesus can help you. Some of you in this room are struggling in your parenting of your children. You feel like you have failed in some way. You are struggling as a mom, as a dad. You are at your wits' end. And the message to you is this. You can turn to Jesus and Jesus is able to help you. Some of you are just struggling with the reality of death and sickness and devastation and you have experienced so much loss in your life. You're watching others experience loss in their life and you are just struggling to hold on. And the message for you is that Jesus is able to help you. Some of you are just wrestling with your faith today. Some of you are worried about your future today. Some of you don't know what's coming or how it's going to work out and you feel like you've just got to get in there and you've got to fix it and you've got to arrange it and you're just struggling today to trust in God. And the question of your heart is, Jesus, can you really help me in this? And the answer from the Scripture is absolutely. And why is that? Because Jesus is the One who took on flesh. And Jesus is the One who died in our place. And Jesus is the One who defeated the devil. And Jesus is the One who frees us from a slavery to fear. And Jesus is our perfect elder brother. And He is the great High Priest. And He is merciful. And He is faithful. And He is the propitiation for our sins. And He suffered when He was tempted. And He is the One who in all of these things perfectly obeyed the Father and sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And He is the one, the Scripture says, who stands on our behalf before the Father. He is the one who will never leave us and never forsake us. He is the one who we can uniquely trust in and hope in and look to on this day and on every day. So friend, are you looking to Him? And if you're not, will you turn today and look to Him? He has given us a tangible reminder of this for His people, His body, His brothers and sisters. And that tangible reminder is the Lord's table where He invites us to come and be reminded of His mercy and of His faithfulness. He reminds us here that He is able to help because He has helped, He is helping, and He will indeed help every time we come to this table, we're reminded of what Christ has done and of what Christ will do. That He indeed died on the cross for our sins. That He's the propitiation for our sins. That we are covered by His blood. And that He is leading us through this process of sanctification and preparing us for the day of glory where we will dine at the table of the King. And you will have more than a little chiclet cracker. And a little thimble of juice. Oh, you will feast in the presence of the King. We are long for that day and we're to look to that day. And so as our response today, we're going to spend some time thinking of that. I want to invite our deacons, if they would, to come forward and to prepare to help us as we come to the table together. Again, a reminder, if you're a professing follower of Christ, we invite you to partake in the table with us. If not, we would ask that you observe For those who are followers of Christ who plan to come to the table with us, the Scripture gives us a word of encouragement and a word of warning that we're not to treat this casually. We are to treat this very seriously and very humbly. That we are to consider as we take the bread and as we take the cup the price that was paid for our salvation and the security that we have in Christ. We are to be reminded, especially the writer of Hebrews tells us, not to neglect this salvation, but to hold firmly to it. So I want to encourage you as the deacons are first passing out this bread, to take some time as we sing just to go before the Lord and pray. It may be there's something very specific you need to pray about. There may be something in your life that you just need to trust the Lord with. There may be sin there you need to repent of. And as you do those things, consider what it is that we are experiencing today as brothers and sisters in the faith. To consider what this bread represents. As we studied through the book of Exodus together, we talked about the significance of the unleavened bread. And that's what we use when we come to the Lord's table together because that's what Jesus and the disciples had on that table dinner meal together and and it was significant because the unleavened bread at the Passover reminded the people that when God acted, God acted so swiftly, there wasn't time for the bread to rise. And we can be reminded of that every time we take this bread, that when God acts, He acts swiftly and decisively for His glory according to His will. So let's put our hope in Him today and let's put our trust in Him today.